Good morning and welcome to Health Watch. I'm Dr. David Naiman, your host. Today's guest is Cheryl Shook. Cheryl Shook earned her doctorate in neuroscience from the University of California, Davis, has since completed studies in herbal medicine, and currently is a sleep science and anatomy and physiology professor in Hawaii. She's also the co-author of the book, Herbs and Nutrients for Neurologic Disorders, Treatment Strategies for Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, Stroke, MS, Migraine, and Seizures. Her co-author, Dr. Sidney Kern, has been a practicing neurologist since 1979, an acupuncturist since 94, and an herbalist since 96. Cheryl Shook is here today to talk about their book, one that integrates neuroscience, biochemistry, herbalism, and decades of clinical experience to lay a scientific foundation for a holistic approach to neurological disorders and a way to enhance the quality of life for those suffering from these conditions. Welcome to Health Watch, Cheryl Shook. Thank you. I appreciate the opportunity. So, Cheryl, um, how did you and Sydney choose these six conditions to focus on for the book? I think because these conditions are so common, you know, they affect a lot more people, such a wide range of people. And then also these are conditions that there are so many treatments that really don't seem to be working for people, but yet there's a lot of different things that can be done in terms of nutrients and foods and daily activities that could be changed to actually help folks who already have these disorders, but then also help to prevent them as well. One of the things that I think is really interesting about the layout of the book is before we get to the sections that are very specific to a given disease, you spend a lot of time talking about um, some of the things that these diseases share in common, which which suggests some common possible treatment options. For instance, that inflammation is involved in Parkinson's, MS, stroke, and Alzheimer's disease. So I was hoping maybe you could talk a little bit about um, some of these different things that conditions have in common and and how those things relate to um, treatment suggestions. Oh, yes, absolutely. And I think that's a really important part of the book, too, because in addition to treatment approaches, understanding these common threads and the different disorders, they're also very important for folks who want to just improve their brain health in general. You know, I talk with people who just say, I just don't feel as sharp as I would like to be, or my memory's getting a little foggy, or sometimes folks will even say, oh, you know, I should be feeling joy in this situation, but I'm just not tapping into that feeling. So I think when I talk about these different topics, these different common threads, I'd like to emphasize that they're every single one of them, there are things that we could all be looking into and working on in terms of diet and and nutrients and daily activities in order to also prevent, help to prevent these diseases because so many of these are genuinely preventable. Uh, So maybe we could start with one. Um, Could Mm -hmm. you talk about one of the categories in in that section of the book and and some of the uh, connective tissue between two diseases that people Mm -hmm. might otherwise consider different conditions? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. I'll give you a quick summary of them all, and then I can start with one of them for sure. So um, oxidation and inflammation, I'll put those two together and then... um, talk a little bit about those. Uh, And those are actually present and involved in every single one of the neurologic disorders and in brain health in general as far as having problems if there's excessive oxidation or inflammation. And then mitochondrial dysfunction, the little powerhouses of our cells, uh, we really want to focus on helping those to be at their best. 
And uh, a big one right now, and thankfully it's finally getting some, some mainstream press, is gut health, right? So the, the microbiota, uh, the beneficial bacteria in your body. And then daily activities, talking about things we can do, just changing some simple habits during the day to help increase our brain health. And toxicity, so we'll look at how you can avoid toxins and then also what kind of things can you do. We've all, we've all been exposed to toxins in various ways, even if it's just pesticides on our food or something in the air, how we can minimize exposure and then also how we can support our body to handle the toxic loads that we have. A little bit about genetics and epigenetics so that, you know, people will come to me sometimes and say, oh, my grandma has Alzheimer's disease, what does that mean? So addressing that you can do a lot to work with the, the cards that you're dealt um, in terms of environment and diet. And then um, I would love to talk about sleep because there's a big interaction between poor sleep and neurologic disorders and poor brain health. Well, well maybe since you uh, are currently a sleep science professor, we could start there. So you do devote a chapter of herbs and nutrients for neurological disorders to to sleep. Why is sleep such an important, obviously it's important for everyone and, and I'll have people on talking about heart disease or or joint pain and, and sleep is still something important in those conditions, but it's particularly important if you're suffering from a neurological condition. Why is that so? And, and what is considered good sleep? Okay, so um, the what is considered good sleep? So most of us, we, we really do need around eight hours of sleep a night. It's, it's hardly, it's less than a half a percent of people who can really get by on, on less than that a night. And in fact, those folks are, are actually have a sleep disorder called short sleepers. So most people really do need around eight hours of sleep a night. And then some of the, the problems with getting poor sleep that are related to neurologic disorders are actually related to some of the the, the topics, the other topics. So, for example, getting poor sleep. One of the associations between poor sleep and neurologic disorders, because there are a lot. There's a lot of research about how getting poor sleep is associated with higher incidence of neurologic disorders. Um, and one of the key aspects of that is actually inflammation. So poor sleep really increases inflammation, and it's one of the connections between even just feeling achy and having a higher level of disease and disorder. And then also um, getting poor sleep has been shown in animal studies. It actually kills brain cells. <laughs> so we have brain cells in regions that cope with stress and memory and cognition. And poor sleep results in their dying, including neurons also in areas that are important for memory. And um, And so... We really need to get the sleep in order to reduce the inflammation, to reduce cell death. And then there's been a fair amount of research lately on something called the glymphatic system. Have you heard of that? I haven't, actually. Yeah, the, the, the glymphatic system. So it's the part of your brain that cleans out your brain. And uh, it turns out that when you sleep, your glymphatic system, it's doing your housekeeping, essentially, cleaning out your brain. When you sleep, it's twice as active. And it's so important for clearing out metabolic waste. And in particular, some of the molecules that are involved with Alzheimer's disease, with Parkinson's disease, some of these molecules that build up in the brain get cleared out while you're sleeping through this glymphatic system. So sleep is also the time to clear out the metabolic waste in our brains that 
a buildup of that waste could lead to neurologic disorders. Does that cleaning or clearing out of waste from the brain happen if you're taking sleep medications to get sleep? Is it just very? Is it just the amount of sleep that you get versus how you get it, or does the how you get it actually uh, matter in that regard? Oh, I appreciate you bringing that up. So sleep medications uh, in general are doing more harm than good. And I even read a quote, I think it was from the director of UCLA Sleep Science, talking about how in in the years ahead we'll view the the sleep medication or the sleep pharmaceutical industry the way that cigarettes were viewed decades ago when we would see ads with doctors, you know, this is the cigarette that the doctors smoke, you know, trying to make it seem like they were helpful in some way. And that there's, there's so much research now showing that when you're taking a sleep medication, a lot of them are disrupting what's called your sleep architecture. And so, so people being, knocked out and feeling like you're sleeping is not the same thing as actually sleeping. So your brain has to be active in a certain way and your brain has to go through particular stages that could be affected by sleep medications, other drugs, alcohol. Uh, and so this, the, the activity that your brain needs to go through to successfully accomplish the, the cleaning and the detox and the other aspects of brain health, you actually have to go through the normal sleep architecture, and that can absolutely be affected by sleep medications in a negative way. So I'm sure a lot of our listeners are saying, well, I know I don't get enough sleep, but I I can't get enough sleep for one reason or another. How do I move forward and, and sleep better? Yeah. So when I'm helping people with that, one of the first things I want to do is just meet them where they are, right? So find out what they're doing, what are their habits during the day, what are their habits right before they go to bed? And then what are their habits right when they're in bed? You know, the actual sleeping time, what are they doing? And so um, one of the things that's really helpful to have an interaction here between neurologic disorders and sleep is to get some exercise. And exercise, while it helps to reduce neurologic disorders um, and helps with them, it also helps with sleep. And it doesn't have to be a lot. It could just be 30 minutes of an activity that just gets you a little bit sweaty and raises your heart rate a little bit. And just doing that every other day or three or four times a week can really help with sleep. And then uh, we've been hearing a lot more, and and the research is, is absolutely there, too, about having light on the face before we go to bed. So we really want to minimize having that screen time right before we go to bed, looking at the computer, looking at the, the phones. I even saw a study recently that was talking about teens, not only if they're not, if they, even if they quit using the phone when they're in the room, just simply having it in the room can be disruptive to sleep. But there are some apps now, they don't help so much with the busy mind part of using your phone or being on the computer or watching a TV show, but at least they help with the light disruption. That that light from the screens, those blue that blue light that comes from the screen disrupts an important hormone for sleep called melatonin. And these apps that are come out now, one's called F.Lux, they, um, and there's other ones, and people even wear glasses, they make your screen look orange or people will wear these glasses that look orange and it blocks that blue light and it is a way like when I'm talking with somebody who really wants to watch their show right before they go to bed or have that last little chat with somebody uh, on their phone um, that they can have these orange lenses on or have their computer have an orange or their phone have an orange screen so at least it does block that blue light. 
case you just tuned in, we're talking today to Cheryl Shook, the co-author of Herbs and Nutrients for Neurological Disorders. Cheryl, I feel like we could spend the whole time on sleep, and we've just scratched the surface, and I'm sure you have some go-to um, first-round herbs to try with sleep as well. But let's let's pivot nonetheless to some um, specific conditions and some of the things that we now know about them. Like it was very interesting when you mentioned toxic exposures that, uh, in the book, it talks about a correlation between pesticides and Parkinson's both in mice. And then in human studies, we find that, uh, there's higher levels of pesticides in the brains of Parkinson's patients, for instance. Can, can you talk about some of the, uh, about that and also maybe some other Parkinson's specific information that people might discover in the book? Yes, absolutely. And so um, there is a connection with toxicity with Parkinson's disease and also with with Alzheimer's disease. Um, But in focusing on two aspects of it, one would be in reducing the toxicity. And one of the things that, that we would emphasize is the value of organic foods and how important that is. Um, so looking at the foods, looking at um, body products that people are using, um, making sure that, that what you're putting on your skin is okay to be circulating through your circulatory system, right? So trying to shift to natural body products, trying to minimize using uh, cookware that's uh, like Teflon, for example, or, or exposure to aluminum. And then definitely the value of having clean water. So just having filtered water and plenty of clean water is really helpful. And then um, with the Parkinson's disease patients, sometimes we'll also suggest um, looking at nutrients that help support detoxing too. So um, as long as somebody doesn't have hormone-related cancers like breast cancer or prostate cancer, using something like milk thistle, for example. And then in terms of toxicity, um, this is relevant for all the disorders and for folks who want to reduce their chance of getting the disorders, is to really look at mitochondrial dysfunction. So just the little powerhouses of your cells. And these, these little organelles, these little parts of your cells have to work harder when there's toxicity in the body. So this is something that we all have to deal with to varying degrees. And so this is where the suggestion comes from to make sure that you're eating a healthy diet. So food has such a big impact on helping the mitochondria to function, to deal with that toxic load that you mentioned. But then also the toxic load causes increased oxidation and inflammation. So now we're getting into those interactions that came up earlier between all the disorders and just brain health in general. Well, and you... You mentioned in the book for Parkinson's patients that they often have impaired liver detoxifying capacity. Do you feel like it's the impaired liver detoxification that leads to a higher risk of Parkinson's or perhaps that Parkinson's causes a higher impairment of liver detoxification? Yeah, so the research seems to suggest more that it's the inability to detox causing a buildup of more inflammation and oxidation and that that toxic load because we all have different enzymes and different abilities to handle toxins, alcohol, caffeine, right? We have different enzymes. And then Parkinson's patients in particular even have a genetic predisposition to having 
less effective liver enzymes for toxicity too. So it seems to be a part of the genetic component, which again, like I mentioned with, with the concept of epigenetics, that just because you have that genetic predisposition, that doesn't mean that those genes necessarily have to be active or impacting the health, depending on what you want to do with foods and nutrients and supplements. Well, there's certainly a, a large number of herbs and also dietary approaches for liver detoxification or assisting the liver and its efficiency around liver metabolism. So that's a, that's a good news, I, I suppose. Um, can you talk a little bit about, I'm curious about turmeric, which you mentioned in, in the book. I know that turmeric has been studied a lot for brain inflammation and br blunt head trauma. And I was curious if that crosses over into being a beneficial supplement for people with certain neurological conditions or whether that's just a separate phenomenon and not necessarily one that's relevant to, to what you're looking at? Oh, yeah, good question, because turmeric actually is an excellent support for neurologic disorders and for folks who are looking for general health, you know, as far as just their brain health. It's, it's a strong antioxidant. It's anti-inflammatory. And, in fact, just we were talking about liver support, right, so giving you that support to help detox. Uh, turmeric is excellent for that. I think because it's a little bit of a... It's like a modulator as far as how it works in the body. I think if somebody's taking it, it's nice to also then take a holiday from it for a few weeks, right, and then just go back. That's a good one to do that with. But even just shaking a little bit of it on into a smoothie or adding it more into your smooth and uh, into your um, foods or uh, for some people actually taking supplements of turmeric. Well, let's switch to um, talking a little bit about multiple sclerosis, something that is is common where, where we are in Portland and in other places at higher, higher latitudes. What are some of yeah. the things that people might not learn from their conventional doctor that could help them in either lowering their risk of MS or helping manage some of the symptoms when they have it? Mm -hmm. Yes. So with multiple sclerosis, you mentioned the, the northern latitudes. So there seems to be a connection between vitamin D, which is our sun vitamin, right? And so um, there's also an epidemic in our country of not having enough vitamin D. And doctors are finally starting to get on board. A lot of them are with uh, testing vitamin D levels and making sure they're at the level that they need to be for immune support, which is particular for multiple sclerosis, but again, for a lot of the other neurologic disorders. So used to be they thought of vitamin D as just for bone health, but now it's so clear that it's involved in brain function and immune uh, activity. So uh, for the multiple sclerosis patients, we want to make sure that they have enough vitamin D and for people who are trying to prevent it, same thing, just really excellent for brain health. Um, but also for multiple sclerosis, there's a, a supplement called threonine, and it reduces uh, spasticity. And so that's something that can sometimes be helpful for the multiple sclerosis patients. And then, you know, one of the things that I think of with multiple sclerosis is, um, and this has to do with also the theme of our book, is if, if so often that's thought of as a, an autoimmune disorder, right? So the, the medications that are tradition or that are used in terms of pharmaceutical are going to often be going after the immune system aspect of the disorder. But if we really look at what's happening, that myelin, the, the coating that's around the neurons, that is being attacked by the immune system. And so, yes, we want to look at that immune activity, but that reduction in myelin 
causes the mitochondria to have to work harder. So now I'm going back to the mitochondria again, those little powerhouses. They have to work harder in order to make the changes necessary so those neuronal signals can still get through a neuron that has its myelin destroyed. So now you've got mitochondria that are having to work harder, and so we want to support that. But then also, if mitochondria are working harder, we're going to have increased inflammation and increased oxidation. So can you kind of, can you start seeing how it's almost circular and that we keep coming back to these same themes? Yeah, no, it's interesting how we find all these sub subtextual interrelations between these conditions. Yes, and then if you don't, like with a multiple sclerosis patient, if you're just going after the immune aspect of it, then we're really not serving them as well as we could. We really want to give them support in terms of antioxidants, anti-inflammation. We want to support mitochondrial function. Are you are you still there, Cheryl? Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah. great. Can you hear me? Yes. Um, so um, I, one of the things we often hear in alternative medicine for MS is the use of cannabis, and I know you mentioned in the book America, the American Academy of Neuro- Neurology did a literature review about cannabis, and the most evidence exists for using it for spasticity and pain. Um, what is what are your thoughts yourself about using cannabis as as an herb for um, MS or for other neurological con- conditions? Yes, yes. So with cannabis, first, I think it's important for people to work with a health practitioner who's familiar with different strains and different dosing and different ways of being treated. Because um, one of the things that's been clear in the research I've looked at is that uh, so you have the different molecules that we primarily talk about in cannabis, right? So THC, THC is the more psychoactive component, the part that we notice that would affect uh, how we're thinking, how we're behaving. And then there's the CBD, the, uh, one of the other main components in cannabis. And the CBD is not a psychoactive component. And so what a lot of the research shows is in order for somebody to be treated with cannabis and have the minimal side effects, they would ideally have a plant extract that has a high CBD to THC ratio. So that's saying it's going to have more of the the CBD, the part that's not psychoactive, less of the part THC that is psychoactive. And then also I specifically mentioned a plant extract because some of the research shows that if you just give somebody straight CBD, it has a certain point where the benefits just start wearing off, right? So, or increasing dose doesn't give you any more benefits where just it seems, and I imagine it's just so many things with herbal medicine that having the entire plant extract probably has a lot of aspects that we haven't figured out yet and there are different molecules that have synergistic effects. So that plant extract with a high CBD to THC ratio seems to really help a lot. And, um, and, and yes, absolutely, I've seen it for reducing spasticity. And again, it's antioxidant, anti-inflammatory. There's research that shows that uh, cannabis is neuroprotective. Yes. So you do go in these various conditions, Cheryl, around um, dietary strategies as well. And I know there's some evidence around a high-carb diet not being a a good diet for someone with Parkinson's. And you cite uh, for multiple sclerosis that a very low saturated fat diet and one that's very high in fish fat is is particularly beneficial. And I'm guessing that's probably um, 
science coming from Dr. Swank from Oregon Health Sciences University. But I was curious about where that came from and, and your thoughts on that as the diet. I'm also seeing diets coming out, people promoting diets now that are more like gluten-free, paleo-type diets, which seems to be the opposite uh, for MS. So h- how do you sort out the nutritional contradictory information when you're counseling people uh, around this? Yes. So sometimes I'll, I'll consider what's happening with the research. So for example, if the diet is saying, oh, it had, you know, the high, the high fish, low in saturated fats, one of the things that, that we wondered when we were writing the book was, but could that be more because there was less simple carbohydrates, less carbohydrates, and that in fact, having the diet with saturated fats would have also been beneficial. Like, do we really see a negative effect from saturated fats or was it more just that there was less of the carbohydrates? Because what I'm seeing in the current research is really showing the value of healthy fats, which includes saturated fats and includes animal fats too. Right, so getting cholesterol, getting saturated fats, um, seems to be very important for for brain health, and and in terms of neurologic disorders and mood as well. Even in people who are trying to lose weight, eating saturated fats seems to be important to have. Right? Yeah. In addition to other healthy fats like olive oil and avocado oil. Sure. Um, so so. We're, sadly, we're out of time when I feel like we could go much longer with this topic, but mm-hmm. you do have a postscript at the end about a new supplement that I hadn't heard of before called PQQ, and I was curious, um, why did why did you two decide to highlight that supplement at the end of the, of the book? Yes, yes. My co-author, Dr. Sidney Kern, he's been such a pleasure to work with, and he really stays on top of the current research and the current supplements. And, and one of the fantastic things is, is his years of experience, right? So he sees what works and what doesn't work. And so he found this in his research. So it's called um, Pyroloquinoline Quinone, <laughs> PQQ. And it's, and it's been getting a lot of research recently. And some people are saying, could this maybe be the new power vitamin? Um, and so, but it's new. The research is new, but it shows that it's antioxidant and that it has a lot of mitochondrial support. Yes. So that was why it was added on at the end. It was just sort of like hot off the press, this research. Can we just put that in the book before it comes out? So do you, do you two have a web presence of any sort where we could direct people towards uh, a website around the book or otherwise where people could learn more about um, some of these less conventional approaches to support uh, neurological disorder treatment? Yes, yes. I have a website um, which I'm expanding right now, but right now at least what people can get to on it is I do have a handout for brain health that has, you know, food advice and supplement advice, things to include, things to avoid. I also have sleep wellness handout there. So, and it's called yourbalancedhealing.com. Yourbalancedhealing.com. Mm-hmm. Well, it's a pleasure mm-hmm. having you on Health Watch today, Cheryl. Oh, it was my pleasure to get to talk with you. Thank you so much. We're talking today to Cheryl Shook, the co-author of the book, Herbs and Nutrients for Neurological Disorders, Treatment Strategies for Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, Stroke, MS, Migraine, and Seizures. You've been listening to Health Watch. I'm Dr. David Naiman, your host. Stay tuned for the rest of the Monday Morning Radio Zine.